Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read the text for us today of Pastor Emilio's sermon. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 11, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. You may be seated. All right. That step's getting a little bit easier as the healing process goes on. Um, Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody today. And uh, I can't think of a better occasion than to be up here preaching the Word of God for you. As Chris said, that, that blog entry that I wrote on the subject of preaching for our ministry focus, that just, just leapt right out of my heart. Uh, it wasn't hard to write, to be quite frank, because I love preaching. I know what the, the, the significance of preaching is, and uh, just the fact that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. It is, after all, quite foolish what I'm doing up here. Uh, we're all gathering. It's cold. Uh, there's supposed to be ice on the, on the road later tonight, you know. Um, we, could, we all have other things we could be doing, but because God has saved us, because God has opened up our eyes to His truth, we love to gather around His Word. And I don't think there's anything more significant than gathering around the Word of God. You know, God didn't save us to leave us in isolation. You know, He didn't save us so that we can do our devotions by ourselves in the corner you know, uh, uh, in our own personal way. No, he saved us to gather us as a, as a church, as a family, as a community. And from the very earliest days, God has been exalting his word in the midst of the congregation. And so I just feel like what I'm doing is such a solemn, solemn thing. And uh, I hope that you have that same view of preaching. That when we gather together, I said somewhere in that blog article that, that the conversation that we're about to have right now, it's not just like any other conversation that we've been having today. It's not like the conversation we were having outside in the hallway or that you're having at home or in Starbucks. What we're about to do is a holy, sacred conversation, if I can use that word. We're interacting with the mind and the thoughts of God himself. So let's pray, and uh, I'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for your people. I know that uh, in the midst of our church, we need sanctification in this area. Lord, help us to have the highest possible view of the preaching of your word. Help us never to have a low view of preaching, that what we do here today is not just important, Lord, it is essential. And you have chosen for the preaching of your word to really to be the lifeline of our Christian life so that week in and week out, everything that we do, the thread of preaching is woven through all of our days. And so we pray that the preaching here would continue to be uh, sound and that it would always be honoring to you, Lord. So now help me, Lord. Be with me. Be with my mouth and be with our ears and edify us and build us up. And we pray for the help of your Spirit. Without your Spirit, my preaching is worthless. 
Without your spirit, our hearing is worthless. Without your spirit, all of the data and all of the information is just that, just information. And so we need the spirit to mingle together with our faith as we hear your word. We ask you to bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is, a, um, this is just a fantastic passage of Scripture, uh, Romans 12, verses 11 to 13. And what we're looking at here are various marks of a true apostle. I take that right from Paul's phrase there in verse 11, that he had the, the signs of a true apostle. Uh, he had the signs of a true apostle, verse 12, excuse me, that they were performed among the church. And so this kind of begs the question, exactly what is an apostle? And maybe some other relevant questions connected to that. What is an apostle? What does he do? What qualifies a person to be an apostle? And of course, are there apostles today? And if there are, in what sense are they apostles? So those types of questions, I think, are very relevant and need to be expounded upon. And so very quickly, before we go right through uh, the passage of Scripture here, let me just begin by sort of developing a bit of a theology of that word, apostle. The word apostle itself just means somebody that is sent. And when you look at the data of Scripture, what you find is that in the Bible, the word apostle, the office of an apostle, has both a, what, what some have called a technical and a non-technical sense to the word. Uh, Jesus Christ himself is called an apostle. If you would, he is the apostle par excellence. He is the paradigmatic apostle. He is the one, after all, whom the Father, above all, sent into the world to save sinners. But there is also a non-technical or maybe even a secondary sense in which this word apostle is used. Barnabas, uh, Junius, and others are called apostles, I think, in that secondary sense, in the sense that they were messengers of the church. They carried messages to the churches, but they were not, in the most technical sense of the word, apostles like the Apostle Paul, like the twelve in Acts chapter 1, when Judas has to be replaced as an apostle, strict requirements were set out in order for Matthias to take his place. It wasn't that anybody could just be called a messenger, and that sufficed for fulfilling the office that Judas had forfeited. He had to have seen the Lord. He had to have been with the disciples and with the Lord all the way back to the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. And so a true apostle is someone that has seen the Lord, someone that has been with the Lord. And then going on from there, according to uh, Galatians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and, and Romans chapter 1, you have to be called by the Lord himself. And Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, and Matthew 28 also seems to imply that you have to also be directly commissioned by Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, we see the, the testimony of Paul's own calling, that he himself was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ, and that's what qualified him to be an apostle. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, that he had seen the Lord, and he asks the question, therefore, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? And so, the apostle Paul was uniquely, like the twelve, an apostle. 
the apostle, uh, the office of the apostle is also unique in the fact that it was foundational to the church. Along with New Testament prophets, the apostles are also the foundation of the church. In heaven, there will be 12 thrones for the 12 apostles. There will be 12 foundations with the names of the apostles of the Lamb, and they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel, Revelation 21, 14, showing again that their apostleship was unique, just like Paul's was unique. Paul says that he was one untimely born, but according to Romans chapter 1, verse 5, the grace of apostleship was given to him. And so the Apostle Paul has all of the various marks, all of the various characteristics of the Apostle. When Paul wrote, he said that what he was writing was the commandments of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, makes it evident that what Paul wrote was on par with the rest of Scripture. And therefore, uh, Paul's authority And any true apostle's authority was equal to every other apostle. There was no one preeminent apostle above the rest. Peter is not the pope, and his apostleship was not any more authoritative than Paul's, or James, or any of the other apostles of the Lord. So, at this point... Paul, as he's writing this book, he brings in yet another aspect of what a true apostle ought to be. And here he points to the fact that a genuine apostle was someone who was able to perform signs and wonders and miracles. And so really what, we're, what I want to look at today is what can we learn from the apostle Paul? Well, immediately you might say, well, I'm not going to do signs, wonders, and miracles And if you can do signs and wonders and miracles, let me know because there's people in here that need signs, wonders, and miracles, okay? Uh, My knees could use somebody that is a miracle worker right about now. So I would say there are certain, just like with the attributes of God, there are certain things about the attributes of God that are communicable to you. And there are certain things about the attributes of God that are not communicable to you. In the same way, there are certain attributes that the apostles had that are both communicable and non-communicable that we can learn from and that we can share in, and then there are other aspects of being an apostle that we certainly cannot. And some of those have to do with character. For example, look at verse 11, number one. I'm going to give you six marks, six characteristics of Paul's apostleship here. Number one, and I'm going to put these in, 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 uh, in groups. Number one is aptitude and abasement. Verse 11, let's read that again together. He says, I've become foolish. You yourself compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Even though I am a nobody. You know, the trouble that you see the Corinthian church in right now as we're reading through this as we've been reading the the different interactions that Paul has, Paul is having a tough time with this church. And one of the reasons why is because of their failure to support the Apostle Paul. They had failed to rightly esteem their spiritual leader, their spiritual pastor, their, their pastor, their apostle, their leader, and, as he says, their father in the faith. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul had planted the church of Corinth. He was their father. He gave birth to them, so to speak, in the Lord. And because they had not esteemed him rightly, 
They don't have a proper over-under relationship. And uh, therefore, all sorts of problems, all sorts of trouble ensues because of that. And you know what? That happens all the time today. Too often, pastors are faced with unfortunate hostility and animosity and opposition in their own churches. I heard a pastor come into a church and tell some of the older people of the church that didn't want him to become a pastor of the church. He says, I'm going to outlast you. (laughs) He should have said, I'm going to bury you. (laughs) And that opposition is just telling of the fact that there's such a great need for the church and the pastors to get along. I mean, obviously, but really it boils down to rightly esteeming the office. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul once again states the necessity of having to engage in sort of this forceful boasting, this foolish boasting, all because the church had not learned to take Paul at his word. And so it says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness. He'll go on to say, look at chapter 12 of this, right right here in this context, verse 1, probably the most significant verse regarding this whole idea of boasting. Paul says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so Paul, no doubt, was broken over the relationship that he had with this church. You see Paul in other churches. You see him in Philippi. And in Philippi, he has one of the best relationships with the church. In Philippi, he tells them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, that they were, they were fellowshipping with him, joining with him in the furtherance of the gospel. That they stood with him that they revived their concern for him, that they were the only church at one point that even was there to support him in the matter of giving and of receiving. You know, they opened up their wallets to support his missionary journey, to support him in prison. With the Thessalonians, one of the Macedonian churches, again, the Apostle Paul had a healthy relationship with that church. It was an intimate relationship. It was a relationship of, of nurturing, and, and uh, it was a relationship of mutual edification. Paul was tender with them like a nursing mother, 1 Thessalonians 2.7. He commended their faith. He always gave thanks for them, even to other churches, the other churches of God. But not so with the Corinthian church. With the Corinthian church, he's had to engage in foolishness. He's had to engage in self-promotion. And he's had to engage in human distinctions and comparisons. In chapter 13, if you look there, Paul even says that the potential for church discipline is there. That he might have to come actually to the Corinthian church with a disciplinary tone. He says, for this reason, I'm writing these things while I'm absent, so that when I'm present, I will not have to use severity. And so that's really Paul's heart. Paul's heart is that he doesn't want to be severe. But even in this context, Paul has to rebuke them. First, for compelling him to boast, I have become foolish. He says, you yourselves compelled me. They they kind of forced his hand. He didn't want to engage in boasting in this manner, but he had to sort of force their hand. Secondly, because they had failed to appreciate his aptitude. Look at the next phrase. He says, actually, 
I should have been commended by you. They should have supported Paul. They should have seen his aptitude for the ministry. The fact that he was qualified, of course. The fact that he was apt. The fact that he was adequate for the ministry. What makes matters worse in Corinth is that they had proven they had a proven and profound example in front of them they had the apostle paul but they didn't recognize it instead of recognition and respect and instead paul received suspicion he received reluctance in chapter 1 verse 17 is probably the most key example of this that they're questioning his motives they're questioning his commitments they're questioning his uh, his word he gives his word, and then they question his word. They question the motive of his decision-making, and that's terrible. When that is existing in a church where people don't trust their leaders, they don't know their leaders, they don't know if they can trust their, their decision-making and, their, and their, uh, their, their word, whether it means something or not, that's not good for any church. The reality of this situation is that Paul's aptitude was observable. It was evident. And it was equal to every other apostle. Look at what he says. In no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. You see that? Paul's equality to the, to the rest of the apostle, even to the most eminent apostles, was based on his calling. It was based on the fact that he had been called directly by Christ. It was based on the fact of, of the fact that he received the gospel in a supernatural manner, like it says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. He didn't receive it because of man. He, no man made Paul an apostle. Jesus made him an apostle. And I would say the same thing for a preacher. Nobody makes another preacher a preacher. You're not a preacher because a man made you a preacher. You can't go to church, you can't go to seminary, you can't go to school to, be, to know how to become a pastor. Either God is calling you to be a pastor or you're not called to be a pastor. It's that simple. And the people of God will testify and they will attest and they will affirm. And the Apostle Paul had that attestation. He was received into the church. He was received into the fellowship of the, of the disciples and into the apostolic order. He was received by God ultimately. In Galatians chapter 2, maybe you should turn there just for a second so that you can see this apostolic equality. Uh, this is Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, Paul says, he, who he is reference to God. He effectively worked for Peter's ministry, uh, his apostleship to the circumcised. If, uh, Excuse me. He says, he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So in other words, as much as God's hand of blessing was on Peter, his hand of blessing was on me as well. God had attested to his call. And in this context, what made him adequate, what made him equal, what made him an apostle was that he was able to perform signs and wonders. Not only did Paul, did Paul prove to have the necessary aptitude as an apostle, but also in the context of this, he was given an adequacy, and he demonstrated that with great humility and thus abasement. So he didn't have just aptitude, but he also had abasement, humility. Some have suggested that there was a slogan going around in Corinth that people were saying, Paul is nothing. 
okay? And maybe that's the reason why he chose these words when he said, I should have been commended by you, or when he said, I, I'm not inferior to even the most eminent apostles, even though I am nothing, even though I am a nobody. See, Paul had a proper view of himself. And when God calls somebody to ministry, to leadership, to the pastorate, just like with the apostles, God gives them instantly a confidence and a contrition. He gives them an independence and an expendability. They are in tune with the fact that they are not necessary. They are in tune with the fact that God does not need them, but by His grace only chooses to use them for His glory. Paul knew this about himself. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. He kind of sums this whole balance out together there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, one of my absolute favorite verses in regards to ministry. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves as to consider anything as coming from ourselves. He says, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in other words, Paul's adequacy was God-given. It was fueled by the Spirit. It was given to him by grace. And this abasement, this, this humbling of himself, was not for the purpose of asceticism. It was for the purpose of doxology. It was for the purpose of making much of Christ and not much of yourself. That is the number one thing. That's a delicate balance in the ministry. You have to constantly be on guard that you are not making much of yourself, but that in everything that you do, when God makes much of you, that your desire and your designs and your aim is always to make much of God. Always to make much of God. I think the Lord loves to bless ministries like that. Ministers that are convinced that their chief aim in life is to make much of him. Think of, think of C.H. Spurgeon. People by the thousands would come to hear Spurgeon uh, preach. And that was a lot different than today. Because today you jump in your car, you go in your nice warm car, you know, nice, even a, uh, well, it is a nice day, even a nice cold day like today. You can just jump in your car, put the heater on, and drive a couple minutes and get to church. And Spurgeon's day was... Travel was not as easy, okay? So when you got five, 6,000 people coming to hear you preach on a regular basis, you know that God has honored your preaching. And boy did, God, boy, did Spurgeon honor God through his preaching. And that's the way that it ought to work. So he had aptitude, but he also had abasement. And then secondly, signs and wonders. These, I would say, are non-communicable attributes, if I continue with that theme, non-communicable attributes of an apostle. The fact that, he, as he says here in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Amazing, isn't it? This is kind of an extension of the argument here, verse 12. Verse 12 is just sort of extending this idea of his equality, that he wasn't inferior, even to the most eminent apostles. He was not inferior. He had the marks. He had the distinguishing marks upon him. 
And uh, I think what we need to do here is sort of do a little exegesis. Follow with me very closely in verse 12, because I'm going to make a slight distinction. I'm going to disagree with some commentators, and I'm going to agree with others. Verse 12 uses the word signs two times. You see that? The signs of a true apostle, and then by signs and wonders and miracles. My uh, position is that those two signs, those two words, are different. One refers mainly to the marks of his apostleship, and then the other word, signs, refers to that supernatural ability to perform miracles. I don't think what he means is the signs, miraculous signs, were performed by miraculous signs. I don't think that's what he means. The word Simeon and then the word Simeos is different here. So he does make a, a tiny bit of a distinction, and I think that distinction is enough to, for, for me to make some sort of distinction. And it follows, as it does in other contexts, that what he's saying is he had the distinguishing marks. I think that's the way that, that first word signs should be interpreted. He had the distinguishing marks of an apostle. And those marks, all of them, were done with great perseverance and then by signs. And then that is referring, I believe, to the supernatural ability to perform miraculous sign gifts. And then he, he also qualifies these, these signs when he says the signs of a true apostle were performed. The performing of these signs were done in two ways or with two, uh, dis- two distinctions that were made here. First, with all perseverance, with all perseverance. And second, through the instrument of supernatural activity, through signs, through wonders, through miracles. That's the way that it worked. So, although Paul was, human, was the human agent that the signs were performed through, ultimately God was the one performing these signs. God was the one, it says in the book of Acts, that was, that was bearing witness to the preaching of the apostles through the agency of signs. And so then probably the word performed among you is probably a divine passive. God is the one energizing, fueling, enabling, gifting these apostles to perform these types of signs. Now, I think that exegesis is right, (laughs) but I want to show you a correlating passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because they know this already. See, he's reminding them of something they've already experienced. My question is, in the book of Corinthians or in Acts chapter 18, where the, the, the account, the historical account of Paul in Corinth, where do signs come up? Well, in Acts, they don't. We don't have any account of Paul in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth, in the regions of Corinth, performing miracles. We don't have a historical account of that. But we do have an indication once again in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Boy, I tell you what, I try to limit myself to the verse that I need. It's so hard. I got to stick the whole context in there or else, you know, you guys are going to be left out. You're going to miss out on all this glorious, glorious truth coming from the context. And I know that's dangerous because that kind of tempts me to preach another sermon, but I'll try to control myself since the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But uh, verses 1 through 5, this is what's critical for us. And when I came to you, there's his visit to Corinth. Brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He says, proclaiming to you the testimony of God 
For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's essential. The Christian message, the preaching of the gospel, Christ crucified. That's what's essential, especially in evangelistic preaching. He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's the word that I want to focus on, dunamis, because that word appears back in our context here in chapter 12. The miracles that he makes reference to is the same Greek word, the dunamis, power of God, Some have even interpreted it as powerful deeds, deeds of power, and those are miraculous deeds. And look at the logic of it, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, if we, I mentioned two qualifiers here. Number one, his apostolic marks were performed with the instrumentality of signs and wonders, But I sort of quickly skipped over the first one, and that is, with all perseverance. You see that? I thought at first, when I first saw that, that was a strange way to uh, describe the ministry. With all perseverance, these signs were being performed with all perseverance. That's why I think the first signs are really the overarching marks of his apostleship, his conduct, his ministry, his preaching, his prophesying. His, his messages, his doctrine, his theology, his knowledge, all of that. And it also shows the character of Paul, that he did what he did with all perseverance. It's one thing to minister faithfully for a short time. It's altogether another thing when you minister with faithfulness, when you persist, when you endure, when you're faithful, when you're tested, when, t- when t- and time has endured and time has gone on and people have seen your example over a course of time. And that's what he did. Unlike the false teachers who were fickle and shallow and unreliable and uncommitted. And as Jesus tells us, they were hirelings. They were hired hands. They care nothing for the sheep. And that's a true sign of a false apostle. That they don't execute the ministry with all perseverance. You know, I, you see this all the time on television, right? These miracle workers blow into town, and they get on stage, and they make all this noise. It's really annoying. And everyone's speaking in tongues, and they're supposedly giving prophecies, and they're talking to angels, and they're supposedly getting divine revelation directly from God, and they're prophesying and, and all of this. And then they blow out of there. They have these huge you know, conventions and these huge conferences, and they perform all of these pseudo-miracles through psychosomatic manipulation. They make people think they're feeling better or think that they've been healed or think that they can walk only to persist in their disability. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe God heals. I believe God does miracles. I believe that God can heal somebody through the ministry of a false teacher like that if he wants to. But it's not because of the false teacher. It's not because of the ministry they were under. It's only because God was gracious and that person had faith in some mysterious combination of the two. But it certainly is not because of the result of their type of preaching or their type of ministry. And oftentimes, I mean, let's just be honest. 
These, those types of preachers, they blow into, tra- blow into town, they collect a big old check, and then they fly back out in their private jet back home to their mansion and their $25,000 toilets or whatever they're spending their money on because they don't know what else to do with it. No, but Paul was the complete opposite of that. Paul was the opposite of that. He persevered in his ministry and even in his charismatic phenomenon, his, his sign gifts that God gave him, they were persistent. They were undeniable, and he persevered in those things. The words he uses here, let's look at these terms, signs, wonders, miracles. Now, in the Greek text, I can't show it to you, but the first two, signs and wonders, there's sort of an additional phrase in there, or additional word that connects those two terms, which has made most grammarians conclude they are to be kind of joined together. Signs and wonders, kind of same thing. But if there's any difference, then signs refers to that supernatural ability to perform all manner of supernatural things like speaking prophecies, speaking in tongues, in other languages supernaturally, and able to perform miraculous things like healings and even resurrections. The next time somebody gets up and says he's a healer, ask him when's the last time he took up a Eutychus dead from the ground. You know, these were, I think sometimes one of the worst parts about uh, much of that type of, you know, the faith movement and all of that, much of that, the problem of that is it really desensitizes us when we read the Bible. So we think, oh, all kinds of people claim to have done things. So we think that what's going on in the Bible is just sort of normative and average, okay? But listen, folks, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've never been at a Bible study where somebody fell asleep and died. And uh, look, we, we can't be too hard on Eutychus, okay? Paul, it says that he preached for all day and all night, okay? You might have fallen asleep, too, at that sermon. You fall asleep in one of my sermons, 45 minutes, you got no excuse, man. Look at Eutychus. He lasted almost a 12-hour period, okay, <laughs> or whatever it was. But I don't ever remember being at a Bible study where someone dies and then the pastor comes down and raises him from the dead. I mean, this is apocalyptic power going forth in the apostolic age. Apocalyptic. This is, this is what, what scholars call epiphanic signs. In other words, when they were performed in your presence, you were struck with an instant fear. It gripped you with fear. It was so awfully terrible. It was so terrifying. It was so wonderfully terrifying, if there's even such a word. And that's exactly what's going on through the ministry of the apostles at this time. And we dare not just associate any old thing with what was going on in the apostolic age. I do think the apostolic age was unique in many respects. In many respects. For example, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. What kind of signs, what kind of wonders, and then the word miracles, or as I've already defined it, the word is powers, dunamessine from dunamis, deeds of power. What kind of power? Well, Acts chapter 19 says that there were certain miracles that were even extraordinary. I like the King James translation, strange miracles, phenomenon Just incredible, extraordinary, supernatural phenomenon going on. Acts 19.11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs 
and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Think about that. That's amazing power, amazing divine attestation to the apostolic ministry of Paul, that something associated with Paul was healing people. Just a cloth, a handkerchief, something like that, an apron was being taken from Paul's body and the, the, the association was so strong and God was working so miraculously and so incredibly supernaturally at the time that just the association with Paul, God was pleased to do a miracle through it. That's just amazing. What an incredible time to have been alive to see that. Paul also describes these signs and miracles uh, with the, uh, excuse me, the signs with the word, like I said, miracles, deeds of power. And these power, it was, per, it was pervasive. In other words, it wasn't just an isolated event that happened one time, and some people heard about it and it spread like wildfire. No. According to the whole picture of Paul's life, God was pleased to do miracles through Paul all over Asia, in Galatia, in the regions of Macedonia, and in the Corinthian church. Such miracles and such miraculous power was granted to the church, granted to the apostles, so that people could see the power of God associated with the gospel. Galatians chapter 3, I think, brings that to an absolute unrefutable conclusion. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, let me read this for us. It says, So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, God was working miracles in the Galatian church. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? In other words, what was heard and mingled with faith was the gospel. The gospel was accompanied with these miraculous signs. Just amazing. Now let's move on to the last group. And that is in verse 13, Paul's impartiality and his independence, his impartiality and his independence. Verse 13, for in, whatever, what, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. So, one, so finally, with such an abundant display of power, is it any wonder that Paul feels the need here to bring in the issue of partiality? Apparently, the church had come to feel left out like Paul had been partial to other churches. But Paul makes it clear that the only thing that he had held back from them was financial burden. Financial burden. So in order to prove both his impartiality and his independence, he interrogates them with this question. In what way were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches? And he says, Probably as he's dictating this, this letter to his secretary, he says, or, or he's writing it himself, whichever one it was, he says, uh, you know, uh, in what way were you, you know, uh, dealt a, 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 a bad hand here? See, the only thing I can think about was that I wasn't a burden to you financially. I didn't beg you for money. I didn't burden you with my financial needs. That's actually a blessing. And so you know that Paul's using irony. They were not inferior in any way. All of his preaching was the same everywhere he went. 
Look, at, look with me at Romans chapter 15. This is a very clear parallel text that I think clears up a lot of these issues. It fills in some of the gaps. Romans 15, verse 18. But just to show us that Paul was a consistent man. Everywhere he, re- he went, he preached the same message. He wasn't a chameleon theologically. He didn't go into one circle of friends and become someone and then go into another circle of friends and become somebody else. He was not all things to all men when it came to his preaching and his theology. He did not become a faith teacher to the faith teachers. <laughs> he didn't become a charismatic to the charismatic, a cessationist to the cessationist. Uh, he was charismatic, by the way. That's okay, at this, especially at this period of time. <laughs> Theological consistency. You know what that speaks of? That's the virtue of courage. That's the virtue of sincerity. That's the virtue of faithfulness, trustworthiness. Romans 15, 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul was not in that category of preachers that got up and just started telling stories about himself. He says, But what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as uh, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I love that. His preaching ministry fulfilled. The full counsel of God consistently preached, constantly, unrelentingly. That reminds me of John MacArthur. I'm glad he's not here because I can boast about him. Preaching the gospel, preaching the same manner of message, the same expository messages, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, for 40, 50 years. Somebody was once asked in a seminary class for John MacArthur, they asked him, what was MacArthur's best message? He said, you know, the students couldn't think of anything. So is MacArthur not a good preacher? No. It's because he's so consistent that it wasn't like once in a great while you get a good message. It's just a consistent diet of truth, biblical, theological, propositional truth being unleashed. And uh, any preacher should want that for his ministry. Any preacher should want that type of faithfulness in in his iron, in the bones of his soul. Paul ends this whole section, therefore, with this little bit of irony. He says, forgive me this wrong. It's almost a slap on the face, isn't it? Forgive me this wrong, that he did not become a burden. So instead of, you know, instead of appreciating his character, his virtues, instead of that, after all of the false teachers and after all the false brethren and after all of the divisive brethren, according to chapter 12, verse 20, they had, they had taken his reputation. By the time they were finished with Paul's reputation, they took something like a virtue of generosity, a virtue of financial independence, and they turned it into a scandal. They interpreted it as pride. But Paul was not so. To the Thessalonians, he says, you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship. I love this because he's making them remember his manner among them. He's calling to account what he had done among them. He's making them recall 
that they knew that they had seen this example set in front of them. He says, you remember our, our labor and our hardship, our working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now, coming down now from signs and wonders and apostolic order and the apostleship of Paul down to your life tomorrow. Let me just tell you that we can derive great encouragement for the Apostle Paul because as many of these virtues show us, what made the Apostle Paul so great was not just the ability to perform miracles. What made the Apostle Paul and his ministry so excellent was not just the ability to prophesy, not just the ability to write Scripture, not just the ability to see visions of the Lord. What made his, his ministry and I believe his character so exemplary and so incredibly uh, uh, paradigmatic for every one of us is the average stuff, the ordinary stuff of life, his, in, his endurance, his persistence. It was, it was the fact that he was totally human. It was the fact that he did much of what he did and much weakness. We can identify with weakness, but it was all because, not just simply because he saw the Lord, not just simply because of the, uh, the, the greatness of the abundance of revelations that were given to him, but it was also because of his relentless pursuit of obedience and, and holiness, his relentless pursuit of, of humility in his character, his example, his relentless dependency on the grace of God for his life. That's what made Paul so great. And that's so great encouraging for you and I because what matters not is, did you have some supernatural experience? What matters is, what's your character like every day? Paul's extraordinary ministry often shined the brightest in the context of his everyday affairs. It was that endurance. It was that persistence. It was the fact that he wasn't just a flash in the pan. He wasn't a one-hit wonder. It was the fact that he endured through the ordinary means of grace. Now, let me talk to us about that. The ordinary means of grace. You know what that means? That means the things, the ordinary things that God has ordained for your life as His child to grow you, to mature you, to turn you and conform you more and more into the image of Christ. Don't despise the ordinary means of grace, the coming to church, the sitting in the pew, don't despise the fellowship. Don't despise the reading of your Bibles. Don't despise, don't despise prayer. Don't despise these things, brethren. Don't despise the fact that we take the Lord's Supper every month, okay? These things, let them never become routine. Let them never become rote. If we gotta change up the day just to kinda keep it fresh for you, okay. But you know what's gonna keep it more fresh? Is your passion to love Christ. That's it. Your love for Christ. What makes all of these things non-religious, non-rote, non-normal? What keeps it active and vibrant and fresh? Love. That's it. Right? Love. The way you love Christ. Your commitment to love Christ. To see Him as beautiful. To gaze upon His beauty. To consider all the time the beauty of His person. The beauty of His work. I tell you what. When you are constantly gazing at the beauty of Christ in His person and work, the normative means of grace have the sweetest flavor 
They can never become stagnant or stale. They never get old. If you've truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you know that his will for you is the best. And if he wants to grow you, not through signs, miracles, and wonders, but he wants to grow you through being committed to serve in the nursery. That's his will for you, to serve and worship. That's his will. You say, well, that's easy for you because you get to preach and all of that. Well, listen, folks, you see the outcome, okay? But trust me, week after week, hour after hour, putting your elbows around your Bible for 30 hours a week is not always what you think it's all cracked up to be. Sometimes it takes just, just flat-out perseverance. I have no emotion attached to it. Sorry if that's a re- bad revelation for some of you. But sometimes it's not just, you know, this, 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 this uh, you know, euphoric experience, okay? Sometimes it just takes good old-fashioned perseverance. And that's the same thing it takes for you week in and week out in the Christian life, all the way until God calls you home. Father, Lord, we do pray for that perseverance today. We know that the Apostle Paul was great, not just because of his apostolic signs that he was able to perform, not just, Lord, because he saw the dead raised and he preached to thousands and he, and he, and he saw miracles of, of extraordinary kinds. It wasn't just because of the authority that you had given him. Lord, but what made Paul so exemplary for us What made it possible for us to agree with what he said there in 1 Corinthians 11, that we would imitate him just as he imitates Christ? Is everything in between, Lord? It's the fact that he got up every day. It's the fact that he prayed. It's the fact that he opened his Bible. It's the fact that he never stopped serving. It's the fact that he never stopped committing himself to the fellowship of the churches. It's the fact that he continued to love the brethren. It's the fact that he continued to love you and to obey you week in and week out. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the same perseverance for your glory. Father, bless our fellowship as we're getting ready to eat a meal together. We pray that you would just bless our fellowship, make it spiritual. We know a lot of families are not here, but we just pray that the families that are here would be fully here. And you're here, and that's what the most important thing of all. You're in our midst. We bless you, our great covenant-keeping God. In Jesus' name, amen.